This is unprecedented. I'm at... No, no, you're not. Wait a second. Who wrote this? <laughs> Hi, Tom. Who are you? <laughs> Welcome to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White, resident scholar at AEI, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Talfort Gang. Adam, it's good to be here and to remember who I really am. Does any of us really know who we really are, though? It's a subject for another podcast. That's another podcast. Now, usually on this podcast, we're joined by a special guest. We interview them about a book or an article they've written or something that they're doing out in the world. We have an empty chair here today. You're stuck with just Tall and me. But here's why. I recently published an essay on the Atlantic's website titled Republic If We Can Keep It. And it was a discussion of Republican virtue. Tall and I have been kicking this around since, I don't know, how long would you say these issues? Been kicking them around since... I think since you started here. For a long time. And this essay was just my first stab at working through some of these issues. But Tall and I continue to think about them and talk about them. And we thought the podcast might be an opportunity to sort of elaborate on our thinking and uh, raise questions for future projects. Well, I certainly have some questions for you with regard to this this essay. So you're obviously riffing to an extent off of Benjamin Franklin's famous, possibly apocryphal story that when he exited the Constitutional Convention, an onlooker asked, well, doctor, what have we got? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. Yeah. And recently, Justice Gorsuch and in his book, A Republic, If You Can Keep It, and in his end of year remarks, Chief Justice John Roberts touched on many of the same themes that Justice Gorsuch talked about in his book. What do those two have in common as far as the themes they discuss and, and what do they have to do with keeping the republic? You know, that Franklin story has always sort of fascinated me. It's, it's, you know, it's probably almost certainly never really happened, but it's just, it's too good to check. And it's been used over and over again. It occurred to me, Mitch Daniels, his, his policy book during his almost presidential campaign, I think was titled A Republic If We Can Keep It. It's a familiar line. The thing is, if you think about it, on its face, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, what would it take for the people to keep the republic? I mean, if all we're talking about is it's a republic if you can keep it means don't amend the Constitution too much to get rid of the structure. Well, that's not a very impressive lesson. And if anything, it's been a total success because we've done very little to amend the structure of the Constitution other than, I suppose, the, the way we select U.S. senators. I think what Franklin was getting at, though, was something deeper, and it goes to another aspect of Franklin's thought, right? Franklin famously wrote an entire book on, on virtues and virtuous living, thrift, and so on. And the more I've thought about it, the more I wonder if maybe that's what Franklin was getting at. It wasn't just a republic, please keep the structure. It was a republic that only works if the people themselves and elected officials conduct themselves a certain way. And so I've been chewing on this for a while, and then Justice Gorsuch released his book in the fall which is not mostly about this. In fact, you wrote a, a phenomenal essay on the book for Commentary Magazine, which everybody ought to go out and read, where Gorsuch explores a number of themes, and many of them are, are familiar themes of constitutional structure and judicial restraint and originalism. But we need to talk a little bit about civility. Maybe we'll get back to civility later. Oh, we will. We, we talked a little bit about civility and the civility that allows the court to function the way it does and the civility that he thinks the people need in order to function. He put that book out in what, maybe September, I suppose, October? End of the summer. So it just missed beach reading season, right? Unfortunately. It's a shame. But then on New Year's Eve, Chief Justice Roberts put out his annual report. He puts it out every year, and tall, I'm sure you, like I, wait up every New Year's Eve to get Chief Justice Roberts' report. I get alerts on my phone. That's right. What, an alert that it's New Year's Eve? 
no, that that it's it's time to read the the chief justice's report. Adam, what? that's that's like that's like that's, what do you take me for? That's that's actually I know what it's New Year's. Now I'm jealous. I feel like I need to program something into my calendar. Like every year, remember to read. Read the report. I'm not sure how you could forget. That's next level. I'm impressed. Well, Roberts puts out his annual report, and I've always loved this report. His predecessor, Rehnquist, did this too. But Roberts's reports, they are sometimes literary, sometimes poetic, sometimes funny. This one seemed very serious. And of course, it was just it was written or published just on the eve of the impeachment trial when the country's mind was beginning to focus on public matters of real gravity, where the chief justice was going to be in the middle. And he tells a story about, again, from the founding era, when John Jay, erstwhile co-author of The Federalist, injured in a mob that had been stirred up by rumors in the press about medical students going grave digging. And Roberts takes it as a lesson uh, that then as now, the people are always subject to getting whipped up into a passionate frenzy. And the challenge then is for the people to learn how to avoid that, uh, how to mute those passions so that democracy can function. And so when the Roberts essay came, the Roberts letter came out especially, it sort of brought together a number of themes that you and I have been talking about. And so I wrote about it for The Atlantic. So I want to explore this term civility, I, I promised. And, and I know you want to get to that also because it's a, it's a touchy term. It's a term that a lot of people have problems with. And, and we'll talk about that and, and it's in a little in, bit. And in contrast with, with Republican virtue, right? It's, it's, it's maybe part of virtue, but it's... So, so that's, that's my question. What's the relationship between Republican virtue, meaning the, the set of characteristics and behaviors that allow us to function as a self-governing, self-determining people, and civility? I'll quote very briefly from your essay. You wrote, for Gorsuch, civic virtue requires civility. His book highlights the example of his own court. The justices are able to argue and disagree so vigorously in their judicial opinions only because they work so hard to foster a spirit of community with one another. What about that can we extrapolate for our own personal lives? And what's the causal function there? What's, What's the relationship really between being civil and functioning institutions? I'm still trying to wrap my head around what what's the best way to understand Republican virtue. It's a concept that's out there. You've seen it many ways. I just borrow Irving Kristol's definition, but civility seems part of it. You're right. Gorsuch highlights it. He says, in our courthouse, the justices all work together, but also eat meals together. We get along well. We eat meals with one another's clerks. And that it's because of those friend those friendships, those trust-based and trust-filled relationships it's only because of that that we're able to disagree the way that we do. And that was the lesson I tried to draw from Gorsuch's book. And in a way, it sort of marks a contrast with a much more prominent essay that, that another Adam, Adam Sower of The Atlantic, had written for the magazine a month or two earlier in a, a big issue on democracy. He wrote about civility as a substitute for disagreement or as, a, as something that muffles up disagreement. And what I think Gorsuch was getting at, and I think it's the it's the best way to think of civility in our constitutional structure is that we need to have a certain amount of civility, a sense of goodwill, an ability to relate to one another, not to stifle disagreement or avoid disagreement, but to facilitate disagreement. Only in those relationships can we really disagree as bluntly as we can. Maybe the best example of this, and I didn't talk about it in the, I didn't write about it in the essay, was the famous friendship between Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. Scalia said, he wrote in his judicial opinions, extremely critical and sometimes, you know, grandiosely, 
you know, critical judicial opinions, just blasting his colleagues. But then in, he and Justice Ginsburg could get along very well. And she was no, she didn't pull any punches with him either in her opinions. And yet they were able to get along. And I think it's, I think it was only because of those friendships that they were able to be so blunt with one another, either in their judicial conferences or in their public judicial opinions. So you mentioned that Adam Serwer essay. Yeah. And he, he obviously takes a very different view of civility. You, you sort of reduced it to replacement for healthy disagreement. And I, I think there, there's something to be said there. I, I know that Jonah Goldberg, a frequent occupant of this very studio, likes to talk about the, the cult of unity and how dangerous that can be. I don't think that you and I would argue that civility and the cult of unity and national, national unity in fighting a common enemy or in achieving a common goal are, are necessarily coterminous. But I, I do want to, to quote Serwer, who defines civility. He says there are two possible definitions. The first is not being an And I hope we, we don't have to bleep that, but maybe we will. Maybe we only bleep Andrew Jackson's name here. <laughs> uh, the second definition is, quote, I can do what I want and you can shut up. Yeah. The latter definition currently dominates American political discourse, he says. Do you think he's just just way off here you think that there's there's something missing in his first description of not being a, a bad person what's missing well i think in that sef- second definition especially he and i are talking about two fundamentally different kinds of of civility and, and in fact my my piece sort of it refers in a way to what he's getting at. I said with Gorsuch, he's calling for civility not to not to stifle disagreement, but to facilitate it. But of course, civility is often weaponized to stifle disagreement. Think about the entire debate over safe spaces today. The debate over safe spaces is basically saying to a large number of people, you know, say on college campuses, do not say things that hurt our feelings. We will do what we want to do. We'll we'll be who we want to be, and you need to be civil and not criticize. In a way, I, and I, I don't know if that's what Server was talking about, I can't remember, but we certainly have seen that in a variety of places, that this sort of in an individualized, hyper-individualistic culture, the idea is, I'll live my life however I want, don't you dare criticize me or say something that hurts my feelings. And if that's what civility is, then I, I agree that civility is is actually worse than the thing it's trying to solve. But I wouldn't say I disagree with Joan about the, the cult of unity, but I'd say as a people, an American people, conscious of the fact that we all need to live in this country together and that our government is a collective government of the people, by the people, for the people, we know that there are these overarching aims that require some measure of self-restraint so that it'll work. And that's basically what the article is about, and is, is it's our constitutional structure wasn't a substitute for these virtues, including the self-restraint required through civility. Structure isn't a substitute for those things. Rather, our structure actually presumed those things. I mean, that's the key that I was trying to get at with this piece was I think it's become conventional wisdom, especially among lawyers and political scientists, at least the ones I hang out with, that we don't need to worry about virtue in the people or in our office holders, our elected leaders, our judges, because we've got structure. As Madison said, we have, we have a government fit for men who aren't angels. I think the, what that does, though, is it takes one part of Madison's thinking. As he said, we need auxiliary protections. Our primary precaution of government overreach would be a dependence on the people. 
The auxiliary protections would be ambition, counteracting ambition, checks and balances. But we've taken that part of Madison's thinking and we now treat it as it's as if it's the core of Madison's thinking, which I could again I'm still working my way through this, but the more I think about it, the more I, I read and write, the less accurate I think that is a reading of Madison. I want to talk about one of those those structures and return to the Supreme Court for a second mm-hmm. and put on my skeptic's hat. I'll take off my voice of the people hat for a second and put on my skeptic's hat. That's a, that's a very nice hat. Thank you. It's, uh, it's actually a yarmulke. A skeptic would say this is, it's easy for justices to practice civility. They're in cushy jobs. They can have their fancy lunches in the Supreme Court and, and meet each other's clerks. They're all lawyers who can retire to seven-figure jobs at at any moment. But for the average person who's fighting for marginalized Americans, for Americans who are suffering, civility can very easily become a substitute for impassioned debate or for conquering enemies who are worth conquering. How would you respond to that? You know, it's funny, as you describe these judges, it reminds me of of Ron Burgundy talking about it being in his his library full of you know, leather-bound books. Yeah, many leather-bound books, and it smells of rich mahogany. There is some of that, and and frankly, in my my hero Alex Bickles, you know, famous description of judges in in the least dangerous branch. It sounds a lot like that. These judges are sort of dis, they're dispassionate, they're detached, they're just off studying and learning deeply the values of of American history, and then rendering judgment. Of course, judges are different in the work they do and the circumstances of their work. And Hamilton recognized that in Federal 78. Tocqueville recognized that in his writings on judges. And it's true. And I think Madison himself, say in the Federalist, like one of the key quotes for me is, is at the end of Federalist 55. And he's talking about Congress. And he, he worries that without certain virtues, the people are going to devour themselves or devour one another and destroy each other. He says, only the chains of despotism at that point could stop them from this. And that's a very, very real worry. I think the challenge then is counting on not just the virtue of the people to replenish itself, but for the virtue of the people to inform their office holders and then the government, statesmen, judges, to try to lead by example as well. And at different times in history, we see different sides of this equation taking the lead. Sometimes it's the people reminding their government to be more virtuous. Sometimes it's the government challenging the people to be more virtuous. In a way, it's it's kind of like uh, Madison when he said, the public reason will control the government and the government will control the public passion. So there's always this ebb and flow, this push and pull between the people and the government. The danger, though, is what happens if neither side of that is filling the gap at a moment in time? If both the people and office holders or judges are failing to live up to that standard and sort of inspiring the other side of the equation, the people or the government, to continue it to be sort of a worse and worse version of themselves, that's the danger I'm worried about. So that actually draws a really interesting distinction between the actions, behaviors, and Therefore, the virtues of people who are in positions of, let's say, hard power, people who, who hold the levers, yeah. right? Congress people, judges, and regular Americans who might express themselves through voting for these people, not for many judges, obviously. Are there lessons for regular American citizens who are interested in being 
a free and self-governing people, but not really interested in the day-to-day workings and responding to those, the ebb and flow of, of passions and, and control in yeah. politics? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And the, at the end of this essay, I allude to the fact that Republican virtue isn't going to be inculcated just by judges, right? It requires parents, teachers, coaches, and then I think I add after that statesmen. Among the people, these things have to be replenished through the real efforts of individuals in a position to teach and to lead and to lead by example. That's crucial. And if it goes away, it's hard to imagine how we get it back. In fact, that's what I really grapple with as I think about what to write next on this is it's easy to speak in platitudes and say, oh, well, you just need, we need to teach civics, which is important. And actually, it's one of those things that both Gorsuch and, and I think Roberts touch upon, teaching civics, teaching people how to live their lives with one another, just that's why I threw coaches in there, right? Just uh, teams working together. All of that creates a people who are then capable of governing themselves. It's about shaping a kind of soft skill of of being able to to live pluralistically, yeah. live with people who aren't like you. Is that? Yeah, it is partly, but I don't want to say it's totally relativistic either, right? And I left good, out by the way. Good, good catch. That was a test. Oh yeah, and well, and also. Religion, I think, is a real part of this as well. You know, one of the framers I didn't talk about in the essay, but who's very important for the subject is is John Adams. And Adams, Washington, and others worried about the capacity of the people to replenish these virtues or sustain these virtues without religion. Now, maybe it doesn't have to be one specific religion. I don't think it's a choice between Judaism and Catholicism. But I do think that religion, by pointing us to something beyond ourselves— helps to inculcate the same habits, teach the same habits, and some of the substantive morals that are needed. You know, when I wrote this essay, I just plugged in a definition by Irving Kristol, an essay he wrote for the American Spectator back when it was still called The Alternative. Back in the 70s, it was called Republican Virtue Versus Servile Institutions. And it was reprinted, I think, in the neoconservative persuasion a few years ago. In fact, if I remember correctly, Bill Kristol and David Brooks were debating it on TV. And I think Brooks pointed out, you don't hear about democratic virtue. You only hear about Republican virtue. And it was that point, well, probably a decade ago, that got me thinking about this. But the point is, I adopted in this essay, Crystal, Irving Crystal's definition of Republican virtue, because I thought it's the best one that I've seen so far. But the thing is, the framers themselves, when they threw this term around, or when they acted consistent with this framing, they didn't have like a, a bright line definition, they were drawing on much deeper, not just deeper philosophical teachings, but also just the teachings of how somebody should conduct themselves. Remember George Washington sort of sketching out rules on how to live his life, or Franklin and others. And so that's the other challenge of this is that everything I'm writing about rests upon this deeper foundation. It's not that the framers picked it up sort of as a as a self-contained whole and then just incorporated it by reference in the Constitution. But it was this body of thought and this body of habit that informed, I think, their expectations for the structure of, of government as they, as they defined it. And then we go forward into how did it fall away? How has it ebbed and flowed over time? And how, if we're at a low ebb now, do we restore it? I'm feeling torn right now between two competing impulses, and I'll lay out what those impulses are. The first impulse is to say, Americans, stop paying so much attention to politics. Stop trying to control the political passions of others. Stop trying to make everyone live right. Stop trying to make 
other people's representatives in Congress fall in line to a greater extent than they are with your values. Learn to live pluralistically and most of all, learn to return to the things that are really important, your family, your church, your recreational leagues, the institutions that are are beneath government in terms of scale. That's one impulse. The second impulse is to say Americans need to be more politically engaged, but responsibly so, to constantly be monitoring what our representatives are doing so that we can use our elections more effectively as plebiscites on various things that our representatives are doing correctly or incorrectly, whether they're representing us properly, and whether we are, and this is critical, shaping the narrative of the future properly. Because I think one of the things that you sort of allude to in, in this recent Atlantic essay, and we were just discussing an older essay you did for the Weekly Standard, may she rest in peace, about the judgments of history falling to the American people. You can see how those two are competing impulses, right? Sort of return to your return from from Sinai to your homes, or or go approach the mountain. To use a an Old Testament example, because I like that. What do you make of that that competition? That's a great question. I don't know. That's a really great question. I don't know. I have an answer. I'm now looking over this Weekly Standard essay and thinking the Weekly Standard may may her, what, what's the what's the line? May her memory be a blessing. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it does require both. I mean. It, the things that I'm writing about or the themes that I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on, it calls for both an engagement with politics, not just sort of a nihilism, it's all pointless, go eat Arby's. Like, it's not that. And it's not at the same time. So we want engagement, but we want the right kind of engagement, engagement that pushes in good faith, oftentimes, you know, aggressively, politics ain't beanbag, as whoever Lyndon Johnson or somebody said, but understanding that it's not always all-out war all the time. See, when you started the question, I thought you were going to go in a slightly different direction. I, I you can thought, answer that question if you want. Well, it's a question that I've gotten a fair amount in on social media and elsewhere in response to this piece. Or not so much a question, but a response. The response goes along the lines of, well, yes, you're right. We need virtue. And as soon as Nancy Pelosi or as soon as Donald Trump, pick your side, destroys the opposition and teaches them a lesson for the bad things they've done, well, then we can have Republican virtue again. And I've seen that it comes from both sides, either, you know, virtue is important and Donald Trump is going to beat the Democrats until they understand it, or, or you know, Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi will do it to the Republicans. And so the choice I thought you were going to tee up was this, is are these virtues things that we can have after we have political success or... Are these virtues things that you do now, even when it's not in your immediate political interest? My answer, the way I frame the question, unsurprisingly, my answer is, has been the latter one. That, you know, right now at a moment when we have this wave of really great judges being appointed and really changing the face of the judiciary, at the moment when the, 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 the effective power of the conservative legal movement's ideas is at its zenith, this is the moment where I think it's most important to call for judicial restraint. And at a moment when Republicans have the White House and the Senate and maybe soon again the House or they'll lose all of them, that's the moment at which to restrain yourself. I think it's the only way any of this works is that when those who have power restrain themselves from using it as aggressively as they can, 
But then again, some would say, Adam, all you're doing is making it impossible for these ideas to actually succeed because you're you're, you're just waiting for the you're surrendering. Yeah, you're just it's unilateral surrender. You know, we talked a little bit about Congress. We did talk a little bit about the courts too. For me, a lot of this came back to the courts. You know, I'm I'm often debating with with my friends, my more libertarian friends who really want the courts to do more. And my argument, which I've sketched out in some papers that have really never succeeded in seeing the light of day, you know, I've called for more self-restraint. And I read Federalist 78, the same Federalist paper that my more libertarian friends read as a mandate for judicial, energetic judicial enforcement of constitutional rights. And our colleague, Peter Wallison, in his great book on the non-delegation doctrine, he, he, he gave it the title from Hamilton's essay, Judicial Fortitude. But when I, and, and it's all in there, and that's true. But also in Federal 78, you see so much about judicial self-restraint, not just the lines about judges being bound down by a strict body of rules and precedents, which, of course, that's self-restraint. Judges aren't bound down by these things. They bind themselves with those things. But even where Hamilton talks about the mechanics of judicial review, and he says, if there's an irreconcilable variance between a statute and the Constitution, the Constitution prevails. Well, when he says irreconcilable variance, he's implying that there's such a thing as a reconcilable variance, which means there's an obligation on the part of the judge to distinguish between those two kinds of issues and where possible to reconcile a variance between the statute and the Constitution. Those are all doctrines of self-restraint. I talk about that in the essay as well as Federalist 37 because for me, the self-restrained judiciary that's doing its work along the lines that I've sketched out in this essay and which I hope to sketch out elsewhere is a judiciary that in the appropriate circumstances, which it kind of begs the question, but in the appropriate circumstances, leaves space for those last, the last mile, you'd say, of constitutional interpretation to leave space for the political process to play a role. That, I, I just muddled all that. I guess what I'm saying is originalism, I believe, answers m- most questions, answers a lot of questions, but it's, there's always going to be a little bit of vagueness left in the law. Sometimes a lot of vagueness when we're talking about things like impeachment and the pardon power, which is the subject of that, that old essay you mentioned. It was impeachment too. I don't know if you remember. But. It, it was. It was impeachment, pardon, and prosecutorial discretion. That's right. Those three. And I said, these are three constitutional powers that leave the most space for the people themselves to decide what they mean. And the point of that essay, which was written before impeachment, I mean, it was, it was what, summer of 2018? That's right. So before, I mean, back during the It was the during the, the last impeachment murmuring and before the, the current right, one. Right. I, I said the real challenge about the people interpreting what those things mean, I mean, the people are going to decide in hindsight what, if anything, an impeachment of President Trump would mean. But it's going to be bound up totally in the people's views of whether the prosecutors, Mueller or otherwise, how, how do they exercise their their powers? And at the time, there was there was debate over whether President Trump would pardon people and in sort of his in self-defense, and that that could trigger impeachment. And so your view of the impeachment would be bound up in your view of the pardons. What that means is at the end of the debates, there isn't immediately a definitive story about what just happened and what it means. It's one of these things that takes time for the public to kind of liquidate and digest and come to a narrative in hindsight about what it all meant. Yeah, I have the benefit of having a copy of this essay in front of me, which you do not have. So. Oh, you don't mention. You, you, you don't say. You, uh, I mean, it was very impressive that you just quoted three full paragraphs from it verbatim. But did I, I actually? No, no. Okay. Yeah. Not to my knowledge. You, you did write the key point 
is that the legitimacy of an impeachment and trial would ultimately be judged by the people themselves. The people, not judges or congressmen or senators or law professors, are the ones ultimately responsible for concluding what constitutes, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote, as the public eventually judges the actions of the House and Senate. Now, I I love the way that that implies that the Constitution belongs to the people, which is something that we like to stress in this aptly and not at all haphazardly titled podcast. Unprecedential trademark. Tell your friends. But I I do have... Subscribe and leave a review. I do have a bit of of an issue with leaving the narrative to immediate political ramifications, which as I've expressed to you in the past, but I'd like to have this on the record, elections are messy. They're muddled. They're garbled. They reflect mass opinions on many different issues. The example I gave was sort of to to give a, a reductio ad absurdum. If Mitt Romney loses his Senate seat after voting in favor of conviction in the recent impeachment trial in the Senate, and loses loses his Senate seat to some unknown, but a week before he did that, he said that he wants to raise the marginal tax rate on the highest earners to ninety five percent. Or he wants Romney says, or his opponent. This is what Romney. This got is it, it. Romney. In addition to voting for impeachment, does something else that could potentially alienate lots of people, or. People just don't like Mitt Romney, right? Or they they think that he that he had a whole bunch of votes on other issues that are important to them that they just they don't really agree with, and they think you know what Mitt Romney's time is done. I just don't like his hair. I don't like his beautiful family. Yeah. Whatever it is, you can't just look at that and say this is a referendum on impeachment, and that's what the that's what the narrative will say that the the people rejected the people of Utah rejected the legitimacy of an impeachment conviction vote. Yeah, say there's an argument between now and Romney's next election over you know, another declaration of emergency over the border wall, and he votes against spending on the wall, and then Romney later gets voted out of office. Did he get voted out because of impeachment or because he wasn't on the right side of the border wall issue, according to his voters, or because of any, any of the other umpteen issues that he will vote on as a senator or a campaign on? As a candidate, and and you're right, and my my essay and so much of my writing on the subject does sort of gloss over how we get from here to there, from the the discrete events as they happen. Who was it that said history is just one damn thing after another? But you're looking around like yeah, intern, look yeah, that up. Don't look it up. But but how do we get from that just cacophony of events as they come to a coherent narrative? I mean, history has a way of settling this out for better or for worse. I mean, the fact is Romney isn't the only member of Congress who's going to run for re-election. Democrats will, Republicans will. In part, the campaigns themselves will be filtered down into some key issues. At the same time, though, history is going to do the smoothing over time. And in hindsight, authors, journalists, judges, lawyers, politicians, all of us will all sort of come to conclusions or a conclusion of what the salient issue was. And of course, it's a little arbitrary. I mean, part of it is, is it's my argument, it's just one of legal realism, that history has a way of settling these disputes. The next generation won't care about today's disputes with the same amount of nuance. They will take our sort of body of precedence and our body of experience and they'll just apply it to their own. That's right. They'll, they'll compress it okay. into some kind of soundbite, like what everyone knows about Abraham Lincoln. He freed the slaves. He 
fought a, a civil war. He was assassinated on that account. Yeah. And, yeah. and we, we remember him heroically. Some might remember him as an, instigra- an instigator of a, an aggressive war and a violator of, of states' rights. And now you sound like Andrew Jackson. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. I can't repent right here in studio, but well, here's, here's, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to present both sides here. Here's a good example. And we saw it in this impeachment trial, right? We saw Alan Dershowitz making his legal arguments about what high crimes and misdemeanors mean. Does it require a crime? And he kept going back to the arguments that Benjamin Curtis, the Supreme Court justice made in defense of the impeached president, Andrew Johnson. That's Johnson. And, so what's that? Johnson. What did I say? You said Johnson. I oh, want to make sure that- I didn't say Andrew Jackson. I said Andrew Johnson. We would never mention that name on this podcast. And so Dershowitz is telling this story about the the narrow meaning of of high crimes and misdemeanors, and he sort of abstracted away the entire dispute that actually was the impeachment at the time, right? It was whether Johnson had overstepped his bounds by firing the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who was prosecuting Reconstruction much more aggressively than Johnson had wanted. There was a statute limiting Johnson from removing Stanton. It was passed by the radical Republicans specifically to ensure that Johnson wouldn't water down Reconstruction. And when Johnson did it, when he fired Stanton and ignored the statute in service of a light-touch Reconstruction, he was impeached over it. And it was fascinating to me that, that Dershowitz took the story of Andrew Johnson and Benjamin Curtis and drawing sort of the salient lines from it, turned it into a story of the heroic Justice Curtis, who was on the right side of the Dred Scott opinion, which Dershowitz kept pointing out, and how he heroically convinced the Senate that impeachment was only for crimes per se, not abuse of authority. That's how we, we take history, for better and for worse and distill it down over time into things that are useful to us. It's a very lawyerly way of thinking, right? What is the precedent? The precedent is however I describe that thing that happened, however I want to shape and mold that thing to to fit what what I'm saying now. So it's interesting, actually, that you say that, quote, the people, not judges or congressmen or senators or law professors, will render unto history the lessons of our time yeah. will shape the precedents because I, I actually think it is pr- precisely law professors who will write the the review articles that have a first sentence and a first paragraph that state the things that we already know yeah. and will probably take for granted a certain view of our current impeachment, not craziness, and any other political and legal lessons of our time. Yeah. You know, maybe if I were to write that over again... I think I would have said where I said the people, not the judges, the law professors and others, I probably should have said the people, not just the, the judges, the law professors. Because, of course, blame that on your editors. What's that? We could say your editors cut that. That's, <laughs> you know, so remember, lawyers and law professors are people, too. And they have, a, they have a role to play in it, but it's not just them. In some ways, the most important ones as, as, as I mean, this is just a cliche, right? But the, the ones who write the history books, right? But not just the history books. One of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, Christopher Hitchens, it was titled Unacknowledged Legislators. And the point was was he was focused on on the authors who created the culture, that created the norms, that came to be the laws. And and in some ways that's that's the dynamic I'm talking about here. I wanna by the way, I want to distinguish what I'm getting at with this. I want to distinguish it from another theory. And it's two people you wouldn't put together very often, Bruce Ackerman and Josh Hawley. Ackerman famously wrote a whole series of books about constitutional moments. And how a given moment in time, the people are, they elevate themselves to a constitutional debate that is resolved politically 
but that resolution is effectively a constitutional amendment. It's, a, again, a constitutional moment. I don't believe in constitutional moments. I might believe in constitutional eras. I don't believe in constitutional moments. Hawley, before he was Senator Hawley, back when he was Professor Hawley, wrote a really interesting article for National Affairs. He wrote a few articles for National Affairs that were all interesting, but one in particular focused on the need for judges to defer to Congress in its interpretation of the Constitution. And there's a lot I like about that argument, except then Professor Hawley really spoke in terms of Congress deciding constitutional meaning at a moment in time by passing legislation. And that's not at all what I'm saying. I think Hawley and Ackerman make you would never put them in the same sentence ideologically, but they make the same mistake that lawyers, law professors, and judges always make, which is to try to come up with a clean narrative of specific decision points that make law. What I'm getting at is much fuzzier, and I think the best, some of the best writing on it is not just Bickle or uh, Larry Kramer in his book, The People Themselves, which came out about 10 years ago, but also a new essay or a new law review article by Will Bode it came out, oh, actually, about, I guess about a year ago about Federalist 37 and James Madison's view of how constitutional meaning becomes liquidated. Again, none of this is a substitute for originalism. It's just a question of how to fill that last step if originalist tools don't give you the clear answer you need to decide a case or decide an issue. I guess the lesson here is that we all do have a role to play. We are all educators in our own way. We have social networks of of people who we work to persuade and understand better. And the the narrative of history is, is not it's not an accident. It's shaped by by people, hopefully who are are conscious of their their role to play, either in in voting on particular issues or just in everyday life, trying to help us endure the challenges of self-government a little better. See the see those issues a little more clearly, as uh, as some like to say. On that note, you can tweet at us with your suggestions for how we ought to shape history, how we ought to think about our current constitutional moment or constitutional era at unprecedential. That's at, that's the A symbol with the squiggle around it. Ampersand. It's not an ampersand. An ampersand is an and, not an at. Okay. At, we'll, we'll cut that out. Or maybe not. <laughs> at U-N-P-R-E-C-E-D. I don't know how to spell unprecedental. You'll figure it out. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to like, subscribe, comment, leave us a good review, tell all your friends about this podcast. And on behalf of Adam White, I want to say thank you for listening. And please be sure to join us next time on the next episode of Unprecedential. Okay. So I'll say, you know, usually we have a guest on, but, you know. But we wanted to talk about Republican virtue, so we got two virtuous Republicans right here in the house. That's right. You can keep that line. The Femsplainers have their own coffee mug. Oh, that's not for coffee.